Welcome to a new episode of Film Seizure at the Movies. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the Film Seizure podcast that you can catch every Wednesday morning with my cohorts Jason Oliver and Chuck Moore and my solo show Monster Mondays each Monday afternoon. You can catch both of those shows at filmseizure.com. Oh boy, here we go. Now this week, I'm looking at Roland Emmerich's new disaster film, Moonfall. There's a lot to say about this movie, but let's start with our writer, director, producer, Emmerich. Um, What an up and down opinion I have of this guy. First, I will say that he's probably best known for being a disaster artist. He's kind of the present day Irwin Allen Uh, since the early 90s. He's had fairly sizable hit after hit. Even his bombs were hits in some way. At least people were talking about them. In 1992, he made Universal Soldier, which is a decent action sci-fi flick. Uh, Then he did it again with Stargate with Kurt Russell and James Spader. From there, things hit the big time. Next came Independence Day and talk about a giant hit. This established Emmerich as a master of disaster as we watched the alien invaders blow up just about every recognizable monument, building, and city. It seemed as though he'd be perfect for the American version of Godzilla. Maybe he was the right guy, but the movie was awful. He would go on to later say that he didn't want to make a Godzilla movie, but then... Why, why did he do it? I, I don't know. I could go on forever on how that movie sucks and how it will never appear on my Monster Mondays program, but I digress. The 2000s would prove to show Emmerich doing various things. The Patriot, 10,000 BC, Anonymous, White House Down, and Midway were either straightforward action movies or period piece epics. Stonewall was a coming-of-age drama. But yes, he still did The Day After Tomorrow in 2012, proving that he still liked messing up recognizable buildings and cities. And that brings us full circle to Moonfall. While the term Moonfall has been used for games and novels and more, this is, I don't know, an original concept. I mean, it really kind of isn't though is it uh the novel moonfall deals with a moon out of orbit and about to really mess up everything down here on earth but again i digress moonfall is a tale of two trailers the original trailer released uh, seemed much more grim and threatening and even yes thrilling donald sutherland talks about a dangerous and scary thing causing the move the moon to leave its orbit the trailer i saw in december though which was the first thing I saw for the movie, is wildly different. It's jokey and bizarrely lighthearted to help set up uh, what this movie is all about, which is an alien-possessed moon that is breaking apart the celestial body, causing it to move out of orbit and rain down on Earth. And man, this movie is absolutely wild. I can't tell if this is a case of a movie in desperate need of another rewrite or if it was a movie that swings wildly from one tone to the next because it had no faith in either tone or if it simply wanted to be a remake of the day after tomorrow. Whatever the case, you get this truly bad movie experience from this movie that you wouldn't quite expect in 2022. 
And it's not that bad movies aren't made in 2022. It's that this particular movie feels like it's about 25 years late to be released. And it's still a fun movie to watch, I might add. It's the type of movie that not only throws every possible cliche at the audience, but it follows this rhythm that repeats like droning binaural beats that settles you into this mode that you know that if something seems kind of serious now, just wait because in about five minutes someone is going to say something silly. There are points in this movie in which I expected our kind of chubby conspiracy theorist played by John Bradley to let the tension release in a scene by cutting a fart and everyone looking at him like he just called the Queen of England a slut. It's that type of movie. But let's back up to the beginning of this movie. It opens in 2011 when Halle Berry and Patrick Wilson are uh, astronauts working with a third guy, a rookie. And apparently a very close personal friend of Wilson's, though all we know about him is that he's a rookie on this mission. They are fixing a satellite when this wave of worming black mass of something probably technological and sentient attacks. It kills the rookie and knocks Halle Berry out inside of the shuttle. Uh, Wilson heroically lands the shuttle without power, only for it to lead to NASA firing him for negligence. Uh, he's mad at NASA and Halle Berry because she couldn't give testimony to help him because, you know, she was knocked out. Ten years after a lengthy court battle has ruined Wilson, he's kind of a loser and deadbeat now. He's laid on rent, and though he's been labeled a disgrace, he still gets asked to do talks about space and being an astronaut to kids on field trips. So I guess that's cliche number one. Loser former astronaut who oversleeps something of a failure of a father and generally shitty human being. He comes across uh, John Bradley, who is a, quote, mega structurist. In other words, he's a guy who thinks the moon, among other celestial bodies, are giant Dyson spheres or other types of structures built by ancient civilizations. He's discovered that the moon is out of orbit and quickly spiraling towards Earth. Now, everyone thinks Bradley is like this fat loser slob. So cliche number two. Oh, he does have one person who believes in him. His mother, who happens to be an Alzheimer's patient. So cliche number three. NASA has begun to figure out that the moon is also screwed up, but Bradley beats everyone to releasing the knowledge of what's going on by publishing his evidence on Twitter. Immediately, everyone goes bonkers and starts looting. Cliche number four. You know what? Let's stop counting the cliches. There are literally too many to count in this movie. Halle Berry, who does still work for NASA, is steadfast in wanting to figure out what's going on with the moon and fixing it. She plans to move something the size of the moon back into its orbit, but don't worry, she's she's totally going to do it. Um, really, the main plot of this movie is that Barry, Wilson, and Bradley are going to fly to the moon, figure out what's going on with this apparent alien entity that's causing all this trouble, and stop it before the U.S. military, in its infinite wisdom, launches nukes to destroy the moon. Now, I don't think they did the math on what that would do to our tiny little planet, but whatever. Uh, the plot, though feeling very outdated, like I said, 25 years outdated, is actually kind of fun and something that could work as a movie. 
However, it's the little things in this movie that makes it a very wild experience to sit through. The broader strokes concern that tone that I've already touched on. This movie wants it both ways by being a comedy in the scenes in which this goofus John Bradley is saying funny things or being awkward or leading a group of other conspiracy theorists who all individually possess these crazy theories. And as this kind of heavy drama where we are diverted to all these extraneous characters that are related to our three main stars that are totally unnecessary to the ultimate conclusion of this movie, really. Halle Berry's ex-husband is this uh, Department of Defense guy who, no shit, always has this rigid, tough guy scrunched face that you immediately have to root against. Michael Pena is Patrick Wilson's ex-wife's new husband, and he's completely wasted in this. He's really just there to throw shade at Wilson by calling him a deadbeat in so many words, while Patrick Wilson is in space trying to save everyone. There's this whole subplot about Wilson's son in the movie, who is named Sonny. I kid you not, he's the son named Sonny, that I think is meant to you know, try to redeem Wilson's character by making his son proud of him instead of this teenage delinquent. I, I don't really know the purpose of that character. Uh, but let's talk about what I think what Roland Emmerich's key direction was for Wilson and Barry. For Wilson, it's always to be bewildered about what's going on. There are several times, not just before, but also after he should know what's going on. When Wilson's asking what the hell's going on and what's the meaning of this or that or everything, bro, just look up. The the moon in the sky is huge. The moon is crashing. We told you that like five times before you decided to be part of the mission to stop it. Dude. And when he finally joins the mission, he is all in. It's a stark transformation from one scene uh, with him asking what the hell is going on to literally three minutes later to him yelling at a guy to get more people to repair a piece of the shuttle's engine, a third engine, I should say, that's broken and can't be replaced. And it's, it's really funny too, because after they realize like, well, we don't necessarily have, you know, uh, shuttle parts lying around because that's something that's gone by the wayside a decade ago. Uh, Halle Berry immediately picks up a bullhorn and tells everybody, why don't you just go ahead and go home and be with your family? We, we're going to scrub this mission. No way we can work with, work this out. See you later, guys. It, it's crazy. I, I, my head was constantly in my hands because I was bracing so hard for the whiplash that this movie gives you from one tone to the next. It's crazy. And for Halle Berry, I think Emmerich just told her to look condescendingly or incredulously at someone when they say something. Most of the time, that was directed at John Bradley. Guys, Bradley here is a conspiracy theorist barely hanging on with a sick mom that forgets him five minutes after he shows up to visit her at the nursing home. He's not a cool astronaut. Stop expecting him to be a normal cool guy and not a kind of loser guy. And no, I'm not saying that people like John Bradley is playing here are necessarily losers. I'm just saying that he's depicted as such. But there's one thing that was the most out of place thing than anything from the Halle Berry side of the story. There's this character living with Halle Berry named Michelle. 
and she's an Asian lady. And I was, and I sat there thinking, oh, uh, Halle Berry's gay. Okay, cool. I, uh, they didn't specifically say at the beginning that her marriage was to a man, or at least I don't think they did. Uh, I'm into it if that's what's going on here. The way that you see them interact the first time, it makes it really think like, it makes you really think that, oh, this is a couple. No, Michelle is a foreign exchange student. She's there for overseas studies. Okay. She also cares for Barry's young son while Barry is at work. Okay, wait, why? Is, is that something foreign exchange students do? I don't think so. Is she in high school or college? Why is this character here? Well, there's a mystery here that must be unraveled that ties back to another mystery. And that begins with me trying to figure out how the absolute shit did Lionsgate afford a $146 million movie? Well, the answer came very quickly when the movie started. While I was watching the half dozen or so production companies get shown on screen at the beginning of the movie, I realized that this very expensive movie was partly financed by two Chinese international entertainment companies, and it began to click. This movie doesn't have to make a damn bit of sense to us here in the U.S. It just has to sell overseas and likely will based on some of the visuals alone. So this 32-year-old Chinese-born actress is plopped into this movie as a foreign exchange student living with a divorced single mom to appease the Chinese investors. It's one of these kind of international movies. And that also explains the multiple times it stated that NASA has arrangements with the European Space Agency and the Chinese space whatevers to send up a ship to deal with the moon. So neither Kelly Yu as the foreign exchange student Michelle nor the French astronaut that we see on one mission, who I know is French because she has a French flag on her spacesuit, have accents of any kind. And I guess that is for the American audience. Now, I could go on for hours talking about how goofy this movie is. It takes an hour and a half or more before we even know what the cause of everything is. And while I actually kind of like the explanation, that's nuts, too. The tone is everywhere. The characters are built on this very unsteady foundation of bad cliches. Uh, there are characters that are utterly unnecessary and only exist for us to watch them do something specific or do something that should make us like them. In both instances, it leads to these characters' deaths. Um, there are so many shots that are supposed to be outside someplace but are shot against a green screen and in sound stages. And that's because of COVID restrictions when they began filming. But that makes the movie look simultaneously cheap and expensive as all get out. Donald Sutherland appears for only one scene. Pretty much if you saw him in the original trailer, you saw the entirety of his role. It makes me wonder why his character is even there, and why did they get Donald Sutherland to do that one scene? Was there more to him left on the cutting room floor? Were there rewrites that completely excised him and replaced that part with more comedic tone? It, it really does boggle my mind. And in the end, I can't really recommend the, this movie unless you kind of like watching fun, bad movies. There will be way worse movies released this year. In fact, I saw one just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there will be few that will leave me questioning as much as I did watching Moonfall. And there will be even fewer that will qualify for a nomination for a bad movie night with my friends. So with that, again, Moonfall is bad, but it does carry it with a modicum of fun 
and should help you decide whether you really want to spend the whopping 130 minutes watching it. So don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and so that you can be made aware of new episodes of our various shows as they drop. You can also follow us at podcast providers like SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. You can also listen to the show on YouTube by subscribing to us there. And I'll be back next week with a look at the new Hercule Poirot mystery from Agatha Christie, Death on the Nile. So until then, don't forget to save me the aisle seat. <laughs>